Uh, Moses, uh, this is a somewhat lengthy, uh, theologically focused introduction. So I just say that on the front end. At the end of the life of Moses, if you remember his story at all, Moses and the story of the Exodus, God had told Moses during the wilderness years that he was not personally going into the land of promise. He disobeyed God significantly, and there's other issues behind that. But God said, Mo, my friend, you are not going in. So when Moses and the children of Israel, one generation has died away, Moses is about to die, they are poised on the east side of the Jordan River to go into the land of promise. So Moses' life is almost over. And it's at this point that he writes the book of Deuteronomy. I know for most of us in here, Deuteronomy is probably one of our favorite books, isn't it? I just love Deuteronomy, yeah. yeah. I'm not feeling the love though, guys. But Deuteronomy. So it's written at the end of his life. And this is important for this reason. Moses has lived with Israel through 40 years of spiritual failure, hasn't he? And he's seen Israel at their worst, and he's seen God at his best. And when Moses writes Deuteronomy, he is looking back and he's retelling the story. He's not in the moment recording what's going on. He doesn't know what's ahead. He's at the end of the story. He's looking back and he's retelling it to the children of Israel. And that's important. So that when we read the failures, it's not this was a surprise, it's this was what happened. This is your story, this is your history, this is what your parents did. Not only that, but towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, Moses looks to the future and tells them, you not only have failed miserably in the past, you're going to fail miserably in the future, so fully so that God is going to banish you from the land of promise. And then He'll bring you back. But we have to realize when we read Deuteronomy, it's a book that presupposes Israel's faithlessness, past and future, okay? So when we read Deuteronomy 7, it's with that information in mind that makes these words all the more important for us. So Deuteronomy 7, hopefully you have a study sheet. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. This is from the New American Standard Translation. So God speaking to Moses, Moses transmitting this to the nation of Israel in their day and to us today, says, The Lord did not set His love on you, the nation of Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers... God says to Israel, I didn't choose you because of you. I chose you because of me and my love. And I chose you because of my faithfulness to promises I'd made to your forebears. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And the word that's hopefully bold on your study sheet there in the last verse is loving kindness. Loving kindness is a key word in the Old Testament and for us this morning. The Net Bible states in its notes that loving kindness here is an adverb. And you don't get that in the NASB translation. It's an adverb. It's describing the way God keeps His covenant. It's not that God keeps His covenant and God keeps loving kindness. It's that with loving Godness, God keeps His covenant. 
the way he interacts with Israel under this covenant is through loyalty. Uh, again, hopefully you've got a study sheet. The Hebrew word here is kesed, and the NASB that you have in front of you translates that word loving kindness. But if you're reading ESV, the translation is steadfast love. If you're reading the King James, it's mercy. The Holman's translation is loyalty. If you're reading NIV, it's simply the word love. But God is telling Israel, and God is telling us today, related to that relationship with Israel, that God kept the covenant He made with Israel loyally, steadfastly, with mercy, with this combination, if you will, of loving kindness. That's the way He interacted with Israel related to that covenant. It's based on God and His attributes, not on the nation He covenanted with. There's a similar passage in Exodus 34 And the context, of course, always helps us see the value of what's being said. So in Exodus 34, uh, Moses is getting ready to go back up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai. And the reason he's going back up is because when he's up there the first time to receive the covenant, the ten words on the stone tablets, the ten words and the rest of the covenant God was going to enter into with Israel, While God is still giving the covenant, Israel is breaking every one of the mandates of the ten words. And so God sends Moses down there. He says, hey, Moses, your people, they've already messed up. So he goes down, he breaks those two initial stone tablets. He's ticked with Israel because they made a golden calf. They're worshiping other gods. They're entering into a covenant with Yahweh and they're worshiping other gods while they do. This is not a good thing, right? So... So Moses is going back up onto the mountain when God shows up and says these words to him. There's no thought that Israel's going to be faithful. Okay, They're faithless at the very inception of the covenant. But Moses goes back up. He's got two new tablets. And the text says, The Lord descended in the cloud. He stood there with him, Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in kesed, in loving kindness and truth, who keeps kesed, who keeps loving kindness, loyal love for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So again, when God's using this word of Himself, it has nothing to do with Israel and their covenant faithfulness, God says, this is who I am, and this is what I like. I'm like. I'm loyal, and I'm faithful in spite of someone else's lack of the same. Think of this too. This covenant God entered into with Israel, it was conditional covenant. right? And by that we mean that God says, if you obey, I will bless you. And if you don't obey, not only am I under no constraints to bless you, but there's going to be Painful repercussions that will follow if you disobey. But even under this conditional covenant with Israel, God says this is still who I am and this is how I keep my promises loyally, faithfully, with loving kindness and mercy and grace, having nothing to do with the party on the other side of the covenant. This is an important deal for us. That's under the old covenant, guys. You and I don't live under the old covenant, the conditional covenant, because today... We live under the 
new covenant, right? That's the covenant we live under. It's not conditional. It is what? It is unconditional. In fact, it's great, you know, if you just read through the Old Testament and see what God said would be covered by the new covenant. When he instituted it, he said these are the things it would do. So he said, I will forgive their sins. They'll be blotted out. I will never bring them to my memory. He says, I will write my laws in their hearts, not on tablets of stone, but I'm going to put them inside them. They don't have to go someplace else and find my word. My word, my will, the knowledge of me will be inside in their own heart. They will be my sons and daughters. See, this is all unconditional. So in Christ's sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death on the cross, He institutes the new covenant, and that's what we live under today. We are sons and daughters of God. Guys, because this is the, the truth, because this is the case, if you've trusted in Christ, you have His Spirit, you are a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. There's still things that are attached to your body that are old sinful selves, but there's a new life that did not exist before that recreative moment of rebirth when we trusted in Christ, we were born again, we were given the Spirit, the very nature of Christ Himself. And we live under this unconditional covenant in which God has promised to bless us and bless us and bless us. So we belong to a covenant-keeping, loyal, faithful God characterized by loving kindness. And now His life, His very nature and character, is inside us. So if that's the case, what do you think should be true of Christians today? I'll bet we should be characterized by kesed, by loyal love, by faithfulness, by loving kindness in the way we both interact with God, the party on the other side of the covenant, right? But also with the other covenant partners like each other. In Galatians 5, when Paul goes to talk about In fact, in this passage, he's contrasting what my old sinful self looks like and what my new creation status in Christ looks like. And he doesn't want there to be any confusion. And you know, when we read those lists, it's easy to say, I'm walking after my own sinful inclinations, or no, I'm walking after the Spirit. I'm looking like Christ. Guys, in the first instance or reference of what the Spirit of Jesus looks like in you and me, the first term is, the fruit of the Spirit is, Love. And in the Greek, that word agape or agapao is basically a Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word kesed. It's this kind of love that's dependent on the lover, not the object of the love. It's loyal love. It's faithful love based on the person giving it, not on the person receiving it. And that's the fruit of Christ's life in you and me. The first one mentioned is loyal, faithful, loving kindness, mercy, grace in us because we have Christ's spirit and nature in us that should be reflected in our interactions with others. As we grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, this should be true more and more fully of us as followers of Christ, as those who have his spirit. So that's our lengthy introduction and a little bit more on week number three in this series we're in this morning called The Church as Family. And the theme this morning is family loyalty. Guys, loyalty is God's family value. Loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, mercy, these are God's family values. 
The theme of this morning is that it takes God's own kind of loyal love, loving kindness, faithful love embodied in us for you and I to live out the model of family life God calls us to. And in fact, without the reality of God's kind of loving kindness, as I'll bet you've already found out, the call to live in God's family will simply be one frustration after another instead of the means whereby we find joy and rewards in our extended spiritual family. When I've thought of this series, and I've mentioned before, this has been on my mind to teach for about two years, and I think it was just in God's providence that this is the time it comes up. This message on God's kind of love for me is the heart and the soul of the whole series. If we buy into the notion that God has called us to live as an extended family under His headship, there's no more important message, there's no more important value that if we miss this, you'll miss everything else. If we don't get this, nothing else will matter because this is the underpinning, it's the motivation that informs everything else. When God is dealing with recalcitrant sinners He's in covenant with, it's not their faithfulness that matters, it's His. And if we don't have His kind of loyal, faithful love, guys, the body of Christ falls apart with one hurt and one lack of forgiveness after another. We don't find joy. We find frustration and division and hurt feelings. And it's my deep conviction that our marriages, our families, and the church, the family of God, is the shadow or the shell of what God has called it to be instead of the substance for lack of this quality and this kind of commitment. And to the degree that we don't buy into God's kind of loyal love, we will not be the family of God God means us to be to each other. We can't be without this faithful, loyal love. Point one on your study sheet, uh, this, we stay, we embrace the pain and we grow up with one another is in fact a, a section title from Joe Hellerman's book, When the Church Was Family. I've referenced that. If you have any interest in this subject, if it stirs anything in you, again, it's just a great resource, that book. And I'll read some excerpts from that again this morning. If you weren't here, let me just quickly summarize. Week one, we said, basically, that biblically, family is the model to walk out your life as a Christian. That is in contrast to isolation or the Lone Ranger, or I'm sort of my own entity and I come and go as I please. That's a a model for dying. It's not a model for living. And the other thing was from week one that the nuclear family or our families of origin are never meant to be an end in themselves. They are meant to inform our life in the larger family of God. Just like husbands and wives are meant to reflect Christ in the church, families, nuclear families, are meant to reflect life in God's extended family. That was week one. Week two, last week, we highlighted a few of the things that should be common of us if we're living life as Christians in God's family. We share material possessions with those in need in our midst. We share our hearts and our lives with each other. And we see that life in God's family is more than me and mine. My my presence in God's family is more than about me and mine as I get my little huddle going here together. So if we buy into these things, if, if we say, okay, we buy in, the church is family, I get that, and this is what family life looks like, you start putting that into practice and the frustrations begin immediately. And no surprise, right? If we don't embrace God's kind of loving kindness, Christ's kind of steadfast love, the Spirit's fruit of love and faithfulness, we will never see 
the reality of week one's title, which was our best family now, unless we're committed to others with God's kind of loyal love, life is always about me. I haven't made the transition from life as I see fit to the kind of life God has called me to reflected in the nature of Christ within me. Listen to what Hellerman says. He's a realist. He says, one of the dangers in all this talk about community is the temptation to idealize the concept of the church as a family and to fail to embrace the reality that doing family right is tough stuff at church and at home. It was difficult for Paul and it is difficult for us. It is not always easy to share life together as a church family, nor should we expect it to be. We do not choose our natural families and neither do we choose our church families. We might initially choose the particular church we attend, but once we commit to a local congregation, we invariably find ourselves among a group of brothers and sisters, some of whom we gravitate toward and some of whom we probably do not even like very well. But that is quite typical of family. People who leave their families due to conflict often take their dysfunctional relational strategies and behaviors to another family where, surprise, surprise, they encounter all over again the very issues they thought they had left behind. Guys, and this is the model of life in the United States and not just in the States, but in the churches. This is the model. It's because in our selfishness, in our redefinition of God's call to community and to family life, we redefine it as we see fit, and this is what falls out. It's just one point of separation after another because it's one disappointment after another. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was asked by a guy once on a road. They were traveling, and the guy said, what are people like in the next town? And Lincoln says, well, I think they're a lot like the town you just came from. In other words... They're like your expectation. You sort of define what other people are like. They'll probably be just like the people you've left. You know, don't we find it true? I, I'm struck sometimes in conversations. I, you'll have with a person, maybe this has happened to you. You know, they're lamenting. They're lamenting one problem after another, right? With one person and one group after another. And I finally will say something like, do you realize you're at the hub of all those troubles? Do you realize you're at the center of all those? Do you, do you think there's any meaning in that? Might that be significant? Is it other people that are the problem? Or do you think maybe you're part of the problem? They're part of the problem. We're part of the problem. I used to tell my girls when they started uh, hitting the workforce, you know, they'd come home and they'd lament, you know, as we all do, this is what's going on, this is going well, this isn't going well. But inevitably, I, can't, I don't know how many times I told them, ladies, it's not the work that you'll find most challenging, it's the people. Work at times is challenging, there's learning curves, I'm not minimizing that, that's true too. But long term, it's not the work that we do that's the most challenging, it's the people we do the work with or for. People are the problem, that means you're the problem, that means I'm the problem. Listen to Hellerman again. And this is so important. I knew I was onto a good book when I read this part. He says spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. You and I grow in Christ's likeness as we interact with each other. 
people who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. You know, it's true for most of us. We know the discord. We don't know the conflict resolution because we don't stick around for that. He says, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave don't grow. Let me just read this again. If you're nothing else I, read, I say this morning. Long-term interpersonal relationships, that means relationships in the church, relationships in your marriage and in the family, are the crucible, the place where this stuff gets heated up, we get melted down, we get challenged, of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. And people who leave don't. He says, our uniquely individualistic approach toward life and relationships so characteristic of American society subtly yet certainly sets us up for failure in our efforts to stay and grow in the context of the often difficult but redemptive relationships God has provided for us. The conflicts we find ourselves in, they're not accidents as God sees things, right? He's caused them or He's allowed them. And He has something in those for us if we'll stick it out. What's happening oftentimes when we run from the distressing, challenging, hurtful relationships we're in at the moment is that we're fleeing the very circumstances God has caused and allowed to help us grow up. We feel the pain. We feel the discomfort. And what we want is pain management. So we want to flee the source of friction or the person I feel challenged by or from because I'll get away from the heat. I'll find some pain relief for the moment. But one step of pain relief almost inevitably leads to another step of pain relief. I can't tell you how many couples we've talked to over the years who've assured us, and I'm entirely sympathetic, our marriage is so bad right now. We just want a, we just want a breather. We just want to separate for a little while because we just want some pain relief. And I'm sympathetic and I get it. Who doesn't want pain relief, right? The trouble isn't in every situation I'm aware of, everyone ended in divorce. Because you see, one step for pain relief leads to one more step of pain relief. And once I'm out of the heat of the furnace, I don't want to go back in. But his point, when we stay, we grow. When we leave, we don't. It's the crucible. It's the fire that transforms us. That's what God's using. Contrast that, this is point two on your study sheet, with what we are very clearly called to in the New Testament as believers, as those who have the Spirit of Christ, what life is supposed to look like. And I've just chosen one lens to focus on this issue, and it's the one and other passages. I'm taking this, by the way, from the overview Bible Project. This is a website online run by a guy named Jeffrey Kranz. I only know him by this. It's a, it's a great website. They have lots of helpful study elements. You can sign up for email, etc. Anyway, 
the way he breaks down, you know, there's these, we say there's one another passages in the New Testament. One another where we are called to do certain things or interact with other people in certain ways in the New Testament. There's a hundred uses of the term we translate one another in the New Testament. And he parses that down and I think he says 47 apply to the church. Others would say 50 or 54. The counts vary a little bit. But look at how these break out. And again, contrast this with the temptation to get away when things get difficult with others in the body of Christ. So he points out that about a third of the one another passages addressed to the church have to do with some call to unity in the family of God, in the body of Christ. So for instance, Mark 9, be at peace with one another, we're told. Or Romans, two times, be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Gently, patiently, tolerate one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving to one another. Bear with. That means put up with. Bear with. Forgive one another. Seek good for one another. Confess sins to one another. You know, we say biblically that God says that a fact is established by two or three witnesses. And so, when we see God repeat something two or three times in the Scripture, we understand that God is saying, this is important. I'm validating this point. I'm verifying it. I want you to get it. And God says in these one another passages over and over and over again, there's this call to unity in the family. That must mean it's important and God thinks we need to take this seriously. It's something we need to work at. Peter Leithart, this is a quote, by the way, at the back, the end of your study sheet. This was in the latest Touchstone magazine. He says this, of this tendency to split apart, to go our separate way, in the face of challenges and divisions. He says, division is childish. It's childish to retreat into our safe places where everyone is like us. We cannot have mature Christianity in the midst of our divisions because maturation or that process of growth is maturation toward unity. So long as we remain divided, we will remain children. We won't grow up apart from that commitment to stay connected in those relationships God has called us to. Kranz points out also the next most popular use of these one another passages is specifically love. Uh, typically, not always, the Greek term agape love, but the phrase love one another in the context of the church, that's repeated 11 times in the New Testament. Not once or twice or three times. 11 times the phrase love one another is used specifically. It's attached to a variety of things, but love one another is repeated 11 times in the New Testament. You've also got phrases like through love serve one another, tolerate one another in love, be devoted to one another in love. You get the the picture. I think your study sheet may have some others that we'll pass over for now. But God is calling us over and over and over again to love each other in a way that unites us together that doesn't pull us apart. To love each other with God's kind of loyal, faithful love based on Christ's Spirit within us, not on the faithfulness of the object being loved or the person we're in relationship with. Again, Hellerman writes exchanging the New Testament's community-centered approach to the Christian life for our own culture's individualistic view of spiritual formation has in turn subtly skewed our conception of God. God has now been recast in the role 
of a divine therapist who aids the individual Christian in his or her personal quest for spiritual enlightenment and self-discovery. And Jesus, in the final analysis, has become little more than a personal Savior. Jesus is my Savior. It's Jesus and me. Where clearly the, the view is not Jesus and me. The view is God and I'm in His family. It's not the little Jesus, the statue on our shelf that we say, that's my Jesus. We're connected through Christ to something much bigger and more profound. He says, such a truncated image of God does little to encourage us to stay, to embrace the pain, and to grow up with one another. As a result, when a person with this view of God encounters conflict with others, he generally feels the liberty to take his personal Savior from church to church and from marriage to marriage, desperately hoping that he can somehow improve the quality of his life by escaping the immediate pain that often clouds the potentially redemptive relationships in which God has placed him. Isn't that where we live and breathe? Isn't that our culture? Isn't that the culture of the church? And this is why you say, if we don't buy into God's concept of faithful love, guys, we are operating in our own concept. So if we're not informed by what God's kind of loving kindness, His loyalty, His faithful, loyal love looks like, then we defer, we default to our own version. And so then when I look at others, I may say to myself, I'm a loving person. I forgave them three times. I came back again and again. And by my standard that I've put up in my mind with my personal Jesus, I'm a very loving person. I, I pat myself on the back. I say, Mike, man, you've gone the extra mile. You've put up with that person. You know, they, do they realize what a great guy you are and all you've done for them? And I pat my back. Jesus, my personal Jesus pats my back. Right? Instead of getting on my knees and praying for my own conviction and repentance and praying for them as well. Do you remember in Matthew 18, the, the topic was forgiveness and Peter's coming up to the Master, to Jesus. And you've got to understand, Peter in his mind, he's thinking that this is extravagant. But he knows Jesus is trying to raise the bar on this topic of forgiveness. So Peter says, so Lord, how often should I forgive someone else? Seven times? Because seven is the number of perfection and seven times sounds like a lot. So Peter thinks, that's Peter's standard. With his personal Jesus, seven times, that would be adequate. So I'd mark off one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Sorry, you're done. We're done. So Jesus says, no, 70 times 7, which doesn't mean 490. It means it goes on and on forever. How often do you forgive? As often as necessary. It goes on and on and on. Guys, adultery is a failure of loyal love. That's what it is. But so is indifference. Indifference towards people I'm called to be in relationship with is a failure of loyal love. It's a failure of the Spirit of Christ's fruit in my life. More than often, in fact, this is where I see this is what thinking of this morning's topic in our setting. More often than not, people go from one church to another. That's a failure of loyal love. Because the, the typical reason that we leave is Someone hurt my feelings. I just can't put up with them anymore. I can't believe what he said to me. I've had it. I'm moving on. I'm going to greener pastures. But then I say, are you really? 
You know what people will be like in that next church? They'll be like people in the last church. That's what they're going to be like. That's the deal. There are times, certainly, when it's appropriate to leave a church, right? But this is what it should be predicated on. God has called me to another sphere of relationship and ministry. And I understand it's God's call to go do something else that requires a different group. It's not I'm ticked with you and I've had it and so I'm moving on to greener pastures. So we're not saying in any of these relationships that for any of us individually, through the rest of our life, the relationships you have right now are going to last the rest of your life. They may not. But let's make sure when we're leaving that we're leaving because God's placed a call on us, not because we're ticked with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Loyal love is the family value. Think of it this way. Because you're a son or daughter of the living God, you share, as it were, His spiritual DNA. And the fruits of the Spirit of Christ are in you. So guys, this is the thing. We don't have to have a great family history. You don't have to have grown up with this as the norm. You, don't, you can't say, Mike, if you knew what my marriage is like, if you knew what my family background was like, if you knew what uh, my own history was like, you'd understand that I can't get there. And I'd say, well, you're looking in the wrong place. Because your ability and mine to live out this call to kesed and agape love, loyal, faithful love, is based on the Spirit of Christ within us. It has nothing to do with who we were before. It has nothing to do with our history. We may need to renew our mind, but the source for this is not something that we bring with us from our past. The source is Christ or we don't have it at all. So this is a call incumbent on all of us. And so all it requires is not that we create something, that we work something up. It's that we do what Paul talks about in Romans. We recognize that in ourselves we're sinful and we're deficient. We put off the old, we put on the new. When I walk in the Spirit of Christ, I have His faithful, loyal love. I don't have to work it up. It's there. When we're walking with the Spirit, when we're saying no to our own sinful, selfish, carnal desires to sin, the Spirit of Christ in us is living in us, reproducing Christ's life in us. Loyal love is part of that. We don't have to work any of this up. It's part of who we are. We simply have to be willing to say no to the temptation to continue living as sinners instead of children of God. Uh, let me wind down just for time's sake. You know, if you're the enemy of Christ and the church and you don't like God's family, you know, it'd be really simple to keep the church and God's family ineffective in whatever God wanted them to do by simply keeping us at odds with each other. By keeping our love for each other cool by encouraging us to hold on to hurts both real and imagined. And again, when I think of this, how effective is the church today? How effective is the church today? Do you remember in the New Testament, in the Gospel era, when the apostles start going out, Christians have no power politically. They have no wealth as far as the societies counted. But they're described, Paul and his followers are described as the people who turned the world upside down. And when you read Eusebius and the other Christian authors of early church history, when you read the adversaries of the early church, the Romans, you'll see that they come back to this again and again 
And again, one of the phrases, uh, turtleless maybe, I can't remember, says, oh, how they love each other. See, the early church was known for its love for those in its midst and for those love, the love of those outside the midst. And when plagues would arrive in Christians in which churches existed, excuse me, when plagues arrived in cities in which a church was established, and I kid you not, family members were leaving their family members to die in the streets to avoid plague, Christians were picking those folks up and caring for them until they died, knowing that in all likelihood they would die too because of their care for these unbelievers. That was the ministry, that was the testimony of the first century church. The first century church turned the world upside down. How are we doing? And if we're not doing very well, guys, part of it at least comes down to this issue. It's the love of many has grown cold. I want to wind down with this example. I was reading a blog online. This is by uh, Trevin Wax. He writes on the Gospel Coalition blog. And he did a review last October of a book called Facing the Music. And it's a biography, an autobiography, written by a young lady called Jennifer Knapp. How many here know who Jennifer Knapp is? Not, not as many as I thought. Okay. So back in the 90s, Jennifer Knapp was a young lady who professed Christ living in southeastern Kansas. And in 1999, she was the Dove Award winner for the Best New Christian Artist, and her first CD was called Kansas. And man, she hit the ground running. And we've got two of her CDs, her first two ones, and they are profoundly true. They have great lyrics, they have great music. There's still a couple of them that... I think of them from time to time again. Great, great music. But the years wind on. And just a few years ago, Jennifer, she's grown. She's grown. So she came out as a lesbian just, I think it's three years ago. And Jesus, her personal Jesus, her version of Jesus is one way to get to know God. But she doesn't profess the gospel anymore. She doesn't say Jesus is the thing. She's enlarged, right? She's, she's become more mature. Our culture would say, right? Absolutely. But listen to these elements, both her own words and listen to what Wax said about reading the book and his takeaway in the context of God's call to loyal love. He says, what's most intriguing about Jennifer's rise in music and her subsequent immersion into the world of evangelicalism is that she never truly belongs to a local church. She never belonged. She never had a church home. Her conversion happens in college when she is participating in a campus group and before college is over, she's already on the music scene leading worship at camps and playing concerts. And this is a freebie. Guys, new converts shouldn't be leading others in worship. New believers shouldn't be instructing people who are older in the faith. We fall in, like the culture does, this, this um, celebrity cult status. So as soon as she makes it successfully in the music industry, she's somehow a spiritual titan who should be leading in the church. Well, the Bible says don't do this. It says specifically about elders. But the, the, the principle is true. The fact that someone has written some great lyrics and some great songs but are themselves a brand new Christian means they're not ready to instruct the church. This is no slight to her or her gift in the moment, 
This is what the Bible says. She's a baby Christian. And what she needs is mentoring and discipleship in a loving, local expression of the family of God. She didn't get it. Like many who would say they are spiritual but not religious, her experience of Christian community is largely something of her own making. You see, it's not only Jesus as I deem Him to be, it's church as I deem to call it. It's church after my own image because it's God after my own image. Now she says this, for years I'd adopted thee, quote, where two or more are gathered, idea of church, where a strong beer and long buzzy night of hashing out my faith experience with friends in a bar was much more rewarding than the feeling like a Sunday morning disappointment. See, faith as I choose to live it. My feelings, my experience, with my friends who are just like me, there's no cost, there's no commitment. And guys, at the end of the day, there's no love and there's no transformation. Wax says, the evangelical stage of Knapp's journey is about seeing lots of church culture without ever belonging to one particular congregation. If you stay, Hellerman says, you grow. You do. What would her life be like? And I don't know. What would it have been like then? And what would it have been like today if she had been mentored and discipled in a local church family that said we major on the majors, we minor on the minors. We want to love each other in Christ's name. We want to forgive. We want to enable everybody to grow and serve in all the ways God's called them. What difference might that have made in her life? And what difference might that make in the lives of the folks who visit Lion and Lamb Church? You see, if there's that kind of relationship, if we buy into the model of the church as family, then we have to buy into the model of the glue that keeps the family together and informs everything else we do. And that is God's loyal love. And for lack of God's loyal love, nothing else works. And it can't. It can't. Churchill promised England, famously, at the outstart of World War II. He promised them blood, sweat, toil, and tears. He wasn't mincing words, right? He says, this is what I can promise you. Years of difficulty. Challenges. And this is what I can promise you. This is true at Lion and Lamb or any place else. I can promise you wonderful, abundant opportunities to practice God's kind of loyal, faithful love with each other. Isn't that great? That I know in the relationships in this church right now and future ones and the folks we're interacting with and our family members and our siblings and our spouses, I can absolutely guarantee you have wonderful opportunities ahead to grow in Christ-like transformation and practice God's kind of kesed, agape, loyal, faithful, loving kindness and love towards the other folks in this room and more. Isn't that great? That we're going to grow. And if we stay and we'll plug in, we'll commit to this, God will help us grow. We will. And you'll become more like Christ. And guys, that'll be a joy. Pain and, and the challenges in the relationship in the moment, they are painful. We do want to avoid them. But to the people who stay and say, Lord, I choose to honor you in the midst of this, show me what loyal love looks like, will grow. There's wisdom as we parse all this out, of course. There's wisdom in how we live this out and what this looks like and how we qualify one thing and another. But if we don't have this at the foundation of our commitment, nothing else will work. 
Father, thanks so much that we are the objects of your loyal love that you chose based on your character and your goodwill to pour out your love on us in Christ. Lord, that you chose based on Jesus' substitutionary death, taking the penalty to our sins, you chose to bring about rebirth and give us your spirit, the very nature of Christ within us. And Lord, would you help us to buy in not only to the family as the model to walk out the faith with brothers and sisters, Lord, but with this kind of loyal, God-honoring, Christ-like, faithful, loving, merciful, loyal love commitment, Lord, to you and to each other so that we can be transformed into the people you mean us to be, so that we can honor you, Lord, in the good works you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.